Hello, and welcome to Come to Believe, the podcast, a show where we discuss the barriers to college and how we can reinvent higher ed for the better. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the CTV podcast. My name is Carlos Martinez. I'm the Special Projects Manager for the Come to Believe Network, and I'm actually one of Arupa College's graduates from uh, 2019. I'm also a Loyola University Chicago graduate, and it's just really exciting to be here with really amazing people, just get to learn more about higher education and how we can just make it better for people all over Chicago and also the United States. So this episode, we'll, we will discuss this study entitled Developing a Best Fit Framework for Post-Secondary Success, which was created by the University of Chicago's Inclusive Economy Lab. This study focuses on what are the key factors for the post-secondary success of marginalized youth in Chicago. At the CTV Network, we want to ensure that we meet the needs of young people in various parts of the country. And to do so, it is important to understand who these young people are and what success looks like for them. But first, without, uh, let's just get to know the people that we're gonna be talking to. First, we have Dr. Kelly Hallberg. Dr. Hallberg is a scientific director for the Inclusive Economy Lab, where she is responsible for scientific rigor and direction of the lab's projects. Drawing on over 18 years of experience in the field, she oversees a portfolio of applied research projects assigned to result in greater economic opportunity for young people harmed by discrimination, disinvestment, and segregation. We also have Dr. Shante Robinson as a direct, as a senior research director at the Inclusive Economy Lab. Uh, Dr. Robinson earned uh, her PhD in educational policy and foundations at the University of Michigan, where she specialized in empirical investigations of marginalized student achievement and underachievement, inequities in the distribution of educational resources and the history, culture, and social organization of K through 12 educational institutions. She began her professional career as a high school history teacher in North Carolina. And let's just get right into the questions. So for the both of you, the first question that I would like to ask is to just tell us a bit more about your background in general, who are you, and how you got into research, into becoming a researcher. We can start with you, Dr. Halberg, if that's okay. Sure. Um, so uh, as as you already mentioned, I'm currently the scientific director here at the Inclusive Economy Lab, um, where we really focus on generating rigorous research that can inform policy and practice to improve the lives of young people and people in, this, in cities, um, specifically folks who are coming from communities that have been, that have been harmed by segregation and disinvestment. Um, so a little bit about me, I, I grew up in St. Paul, Minnesota, um, went to, I'm a proud, a proud product of the St. Paul Public Schools. And um, as a public school graduate, I saw very early on both the promise of education in terms of creating opportunities for young people, but also how those opportunities weren't as evenly spread as um, I think are, are, they need to be to have the kind of society that we all want. Um, and so, you know, early in my career, that meant doing some direct service work, some policy work, working for a senator, um, but ultimately found my way into research to try and generate some evidence about, you know, what really works and how can we 
identify policies and practices that can provide students with the supports that they need to be successful in high school, in the transition to college, and then all the way through college. And so I'm really lucky to be able to do that work here at the Inclusive Economy Lab and in partnership with Chicago Public Schools and City Colleges of Chicago um, to really generate that kind of practical but rigorous evidence. Thank you so much for that. How about you, Dr. Robinson? Well, I began my soft research as a high school teacher in North Carolina, where I was consistently trying to understand why certain students were excelling in the classroom and why certain students would consistently underperform um, and how that contributed to lasting inequality in the space of the school district. Uh, and so I took those type of questions that I was asking of students and student groups in the classroom uh, to my education at the University of Michigan. And from there, I started uh, doing research with marginalized young people uh, in the Michigan area. And after receiving my dissertation there, moved here to Chicago to work at the University of Chicago, starting off as an assistant professor where I was teaching and doing research and feeling really stretched by that and, and challenged by that, I decided to move full time into the research space, mainly because the work we do at the Inclusive Economy Lab is so embedded in how we can help people now and how we can influence policy in a rigorous scientific way so that other folks who are coming through the pipelines of high school and college now can have a shot at more equity and equality in their lives. I don't have to wait 30 years for my research to really reach policymakers uh, in order for that to happen. Uh, so that's where I am now. Thank you both so much for the work that you do and really uh, relatable backgrounds to mine, honestly. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I'm part of this work at CTB, just because of of you know my background, I'm product of the CPS system here in Chicago, so it just uh, hits close to home here how you started that way as well with your own background. So thank you so much for sharing that. Now, Dr. Uh, Halberg, can you tell us about how the study came to be? Uh, and for those who may not be familiar with the with the terminology, what is a best fit framework, and why is it important? And what are the major components when it comes to the idea of fit? Absolutely. So, you know, as I mentioned when I was introducing myself, the Inclusive Economy Labs model is really formed around this idea of partnership. So we we believe that research is helpful and useful if you're answering the questions that policymakers, that practitioners, that people in the field doing the hard work are asking. And this report and study is no exception. So it actually came out of um, a deep partnership that we have with the Chicago Public Schools Office of School Counseling and Post-Secondary Advising. And, you know, in conversation with them, we knew from the data that the school district has done has made incredible strides in terms of increasing high school graduation rates for students and increasing college enrollment. But the progress in terms of college persistence um, have not been quite as strong. And so there's a real emphasis to think about what can educators do while students are still in high school to help students make choices so that they're likely not just to enroll in college, but to persist and to you know, get that degree that they enroll trying to get. 
And we know that that the decision of where, whether and where to go to college when students are in high school is a really complicated one. And it's one where they're thinking about a lot of different factors. So, you know, they're thinking about things like academic match. So, you know, I my with my GPA and my test scores, what school can I get into that's very selective or how selective can I get what how selective of an institution can I get into? Um, but that's only one part of what students are considering. They're also thinking about social fit and whether they'll have a sense of belonging when they arrive on campus. And we know with the increasing cost of college, they are increasingly thinking about affordability. So, you know, am I, am I, how much debt am I going to have to take on to pursue this degree? And what's that going to mean for my family and my ability to contribute to my family? And so what we wanted to do with this work is really understand how those three factors are interplaying, not only in how students are selecting where to go, but also in how likely they are to actually persist and get to degree once they enroll in college. And so we did a lot of deep data work to try to answer those questions, which I think Shantae will talk a little bit more about. Definitely. And that's just really amazing too. The way that you were able to really get that in-depth look at the journey of a student when it comes to not only getting mm -hmm. access to education, but also the struggles that they have to go through once they get there. So definitely a perfect segue for this next this next question for you, uh, Dr. Robinson. Uh, can you tell us about the research itself, the design for the study? Um, what data did you gather both quantitatively and qualitatively? We designed the study in part to contribute to the existing research base on academic match, social fit, and college affordability. And we do so by using what we call true mixed methods, which integrates quantitative data and qualitative data in very dynamic ways. Quantitatively, we use Naviance data, uh, the National Student Clearinghouse data, CPS's student uh, senior exit questionnaire. We use IPEDS, which is the integrated post-secondary education system data. We use US census data, student financial award letters. Uh, when people think about big data and, and the, the positives and some of the challenges that comes with working with big data, we saw it here in all of our data sources. We, we were able to really have a full picture, holistic picture of how students were doing in this high school to college space. Um, and we also looked at an estimation of the cost of all the colleges students applied to and enrolled in for the class of 2018. So in all, we had a, a, a N or a number of slightly over 27,000 cases. Uh, qualitatively, we interviewed CPS alumni who attended City Colleges of Chicago and inquired about high school experiences, including coursework they had taken, how ready they felt about going to college, uh, what did the schools do to help prepare them for that, college choice making, including the characteristics they found important in making their college decision. And of course, we did a deep dive into the obstacles and financial considerations that they faced when making these decisions. Thank you so much for sharing that. And again, very in-depth work. Uh, I've read the research and it's a lot of really interesting data. So uh, thank you for doing that amount of work and really putting that effort to really not only get the data, but also understanding the student experience. I think it's very, very important. Uh, but now, Dr. Hallberg, can you describe some of your major fi findings? <laughs> I'm sure there's a lot in hours, but we only have some so many 
minutes left. Um, and also what factors affect students' ability to find the right college match? Um, yeah. Absolutely. So I can highlight a couple of the key findings from our report. Um, so first, when we think about, you know, this college application process and college access, I think there's, there are a couple of things that it's important to keep in mind. The first is that for the vast majority of Chicago public school students, college continues to be the goal. So, you know, we hear a lot about sort of the declining um, interest in college, but uh, we, you know, for this report, we're looking at the class of 2018 so that we have enough time to track them through multiple years of college. And for that class, 81% of seniors in the class of 2018 said that college was the goal for them. Um, but we know that there still, unfortunately, are barriers to making that goal a reality. So of that um, <clears throat> total class, about 76% of the students applied to at least one college. 57% uh, of them enrolled in college within a year of high school and 43% persisted into the second year. So we do see, you know, not everyone, despite those goals, there are barriers and obstacles that are coming up for students. And so that's, you know, what really motivated our work to try to understand more. When we talked to students and looked at the data on their college application activities, we're seeing that the vast majority of students are applying to at least one college. So they're doing the things they need to do to prepare themselves for what's next. Um, but they also say that they need more help in developing that list of schools. So they, especially in thinking about social fit and affordability earlier on, so that when it comes to spring and you've got your set of options, they have a good set of choices and they're not having to make hard trade-offs between affordability and academic match. Um, we also um, see that when we dig into the enrollment, like where students actually go, um, a little over half of students enroll in a school that we would call an academic undermatch. So this means like based on their GPA and based on their test scores, they could have gone to a more selective school than they end up enrolling in. And so we wanted to dig in and try to understand what's driving that. And maybe not a huge surprise if you know students who have been going through this process, but dollars and cents are a big part of what is driving these decisions. So we see that students who undermatch are also enrolling in institutions where they're facing a lower net cost. And they talk to us about how that's really important, um, both because they're worried about debt, especially if they don't get to graduation, but also because they wanna contribute to their families financially right away. And taking on a lot of student loans or having to pay out of pocket costs, even if they're fairly minimal, um, are a real, real barrier. And so students are, are really facing these hard choices when they're deciding where to enroll between a place that maybe it feels like the best social fit or maybe is a better academic fit, but it's just more expensive. And then the final thing that I would uh, really stress is when we look at college persistence. So do students who enroll in college show up for that second year? And are they on the pathway to get to graduation? 
is that there's variability in depending on where students enroll there are factors of schools that make them more or less likely to persist in college so one thing is students who enroll in a school that is a match or an overmatch so students who are enrolling in the most selective institution they can based on their gpa and sap scores those students are more likely to persist to the second year of college and we know that's because these institutions also tend to have a lot more resources and they can wrap those resources around students and help them persist and stay in school um, we're also seeing that um, somewhat counterintuitively schools with higher net prices also have higher persistence rates and that you know really sort of underlines for us that these are hard choices that students are making that by choosing affordability they're they're maybe choosing a school that they may be less likely to persist in um, and so thinking about how to support students in that situation and then the final thing in terms of types of institutions that support persistence when we look specifically at black students in our sample um, those who enroll in historically black colleges and universities are more likely to persist than those who enroll in um, predominantly white institutions and so trying to unpack that and understanding what are the features of those schools and how are they supporting students to support persistence i feel like is an important uh, question for further research thank you so much for sharing i think it's i mean one of the things that i recall the most when reading the research was uh one of the testimonies by one of the students that essentially they were saying that and i'm not quoting verbatim but they essentially said that it was a privilege to look at other things uh aside of affordability when applying to college so that was the only thing that they could really focus on so affordability is definitely one thing that that makes an impact on students but everything else that you that you mentioned it's incredibly important to to really look at but now uh dr robinson you mentioned that you got a chance to speak to many of these students um how did the qualitative research deepen that understanding uh, when it comes to the findings that we just heard yeah it certainly did the quantitative data helped us design questions that get in at the how and the why all of our research team members are college educated and have college degrees. And so a part of our doing this work was setting aside our own experiences and trying to come at questions in a very new, very curious way and trying to figure out what are we missing in our understandings of the contemporary college going and persisting pathways, given that the majority of students still wanna to go to college or applying to college, but aren't persisting beyond that first year. So we knew something was happening and that students were the best situated and the best people to let us know what is going on on the ground in their experiences. The young people we spoke with, contrary to these persistent narratives that you may hear in the media um, and even on social media that these young people in this generation are impulsive or they are focused on immediate gratification, we found these students to be incredibly thoughtful incredibly intentional in their decision-making process and ultimately didn't want to be a financial burden on their families right which to me is a is a marker of maturity and great responsibility 
so if we know where young people are starting at the process, which is not wanting to be a financial burden, and that they're academically gifted or talented because they're making really great GPAs, they're staying invested in schools, they're getting IB diplomas, and they're getting AP events placement credit, how can we create programs and interventions that assist with decreasing those financial burdens and barriers? And what we found is they're greatly unprepared for that part, that they're unprepared to make the decision given all the financial uh, costs that come to play at that final decision-making point. They know calculus, they know physics, they can do math that I can only dream of in my wildest dreams, and yet when they're faced with the math of how to afford college, they're greatly unprepared for that. Definitely, it's a very, um, I still remember going through that process and I'm sure it's looking a lot different nowadays due to all the changes with FAFSA and all of these processes, but, but yeah, really understanding all of that, the numbers and the data to make that final decision takes a lot. But um, thank you so much for sharing that. A lot of what you said definitely resonates with many of the experiences that I've heard through from my peers at the CTV model schools uh, who've gone through similar situations. So again, thank yes, you so much. You're welcome. You're welcome. Yeah. Carlos, may I ask, where do you see yourself in our report? Pretty much everything, honestly, that I, I'll be completely honest. I was gonna go to the Paul University uh, and take out the loans. I was ready to do that for myself as a senior in high school. But then Aruba College uh, of Loyola University Chicago was presented to me. And my mom was like, just go there. It's two years pretty much for free because it is true. I, 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 I was fortunate to finance my undergraduate uh, experience without any debt, without having to take out any loans. And actually I was even able to save up some money uh, because of Arupa College pretty much. So yeah, that that's, I, I was lucky and fortunate and privileged in that way. But um, yeah, affordability wasn't definitely the biggest aspect for me as a senior mm -hmm. in high school. Thank you for asking. Um, but now going back uh, to you, Dr. Halberg, in terms of implications for improving the best fit for students, what type of resources do students need to improve college match? Yeah, so I mean, as I mentioned before, I think part of it is helping making sure, so CPS has done a ton to really to support students. And you know, you see that in the gains that the district has made. Um, and, but I think they could even push those supports earlier in students' high school careers, um, especially when students are starting to think about where to submit those applications. Um, a lot of the sort of traditional advice around college application is just thinking about like your reach schools, your, your safe schools, you know, and then your safety schools. And that's really thinking about selectivity and like, where can I get into? Um, where am I pretty certain I'll get into? And, um, you know, what can I be pretty sure um, so that I'm going to have a choice? But being as strategic about the social fit aspects and the affordability aspects of the college choice process early on um, is something that I think gets less emphasis. And so thinking about some of those things earlier on, and we know from past data which programs like Arupe um, that have more affordable options for students and will require them to take on fewer loans. And so why not add a couple of those programs to your list 
so that when it comes to spring and you're making that decision, you're not making that decision between a place where it's like, this is where I really want to go and I feel like would support me. And this is a place where I'm a little worried about whether I'm going to have the supports, but I can afford it. Um, to try and avoid that trade-off early on, I think, is is an area that we could support students more. Um, but then I, don't, I also don't want to take off the table that we need to bring more resources to students. So thinking about targeted financial assistance so that students who are facing those trade-offs at the end of their senior year can get the resources that they need to not have to make those trade-offs so that they can go to the school that they think is the best fit for them. And sometimes this is a matter of just a couple thousand dollars, which to you know a philanthropic funder or uh, an institution might not seem like a huge barrier, but to a student can feel like millions. You know, you could tell them you're going to have to pay a million dollars out of pocket costs, or you're going to have to pay two thousand dollars out of pocket costs, and those feel equally unwieldy to them. And so, thinking about how could we really target financial support that's available. Um, to help students make choices that will be a better fit for them in the long run. Definitely. It's about really ensuring that we're meeting the needs and meeting students where they are, right? Every student's experience is completely different than the other. Even though there is similarities, we have to really pay attention to the student situation. Uh, and it definitely takes a lot. So with that, Dr. Robinson, what role can different organizations play in improving the match? Maybe thinking about family members, community members, high schools, CBOs, even higher education institutions, and very important, our policymakers. What can they do? What can we do? Absolutely, because it's, it's not hopeless. There are things that we can do to make this uh, process easier uh, and more equitable for, for all young people. Families might have the hardest hill to climb in this and that they have to start being open and honest about their financial situation with their high schoolers very early. Uh, by ninth grade, young people who, who would like to see themselves in college should know what their family's financial situation looks like uh, so they get a real sense of the trade-offs that might come later. Uh, it's really difficult for young people to think college, their college of choice is at their fingertips and then once they get all their financial aid award letters, and get their EFC from the FAFSA are met with the hard decision of, I can't have it all. I can't have what I've dreamed about for four years. Start having those conversations very early. And that's not to temper their goal. These conversations shouldn't be meant to temper people's dreams or to tell young people they're not gonna be all that they ever dreamed they can be. It's to do the direct opposite is to try to get them to see other avenues to help pay for college, uh, to get a realistic expectation of what student loans can do and how much their family can really take on. High schools we know are already stretched uh, in addition to having to make sure students are passing with core competencies. Uh, they also need to make sure young people are prepared to make these decisions. But in addition to having FAFSA night once in the fall, once in the spring, they can help families have these conversations by having more of those conversations with, with parents early on and sharing resources. You have DecideEd and MoneyThink that are free resources that can help parents and students do the nitty gritty math that they need guidance on very early in the high school uh, pathway, very early in the high school experience. As Kelly mentioned earlier, 
sometimes it's only $2,000 that stops a young person from going to the college that is really a better match for them or going to an undermatched institution. CBOs and higher education institutions and policymakers play a vital role here. If we know that $2,000 is what stops young people from going to their academic match, we have Pell Grants, we have policies built in place to help those who are marginalized and who are coming from impoverished backgrounds. We have avenues to help them make those dreams come true. So we can start using this data for that purpose. Um, and truly, if we're concerned about the educational contract that we've made with young people, uh, it's not a it's not a, a heavy lift. It's not um, the bridge of Gibraltar or whatever they say. It's it's something that is very doable uh, when we're thinking about it in the way of two thousand dollars can be a, a student persisting for four years or a student starting uh, and never leaving with the degree. That was that's the worst thing that can happen. Yeah, I completely agree. I think. Oh. Even a small type of uh, scholarships or grants or stuff like that could definitely alleviate student situation. I mean, I was uh, fortunate enough as well that I got a scholarship through my elderman's office at the time. Mm. So even those type of opportunities should be more, uh, you know, given to the students and not only given, but students should be aware of those uh, in their families. So I definitely think that's very important. And thank you for sharing that. Um, now, Dr. Halbert, if what if a student does end up undermatching, even though we went through all of these things beforehand, uh, uh, despite all the efforts, what are the most important factors that can still contribute to that student success? Absolutely. So you know, I think I think this is an incredibly important question because we know that even with the best guidance, even with additional financial resources, open access and less selective institutions are going to continue to play an incredibly important role in our higher education system and in, in increasing access to students. And so we have to figure out how to make those, those institutions as successful and, and have pathways for students to be as successful in those institutions as students are at the more selective um, and higher higher price institutions. And you know, luckily, there's a growing body of evidence um, and research, including some research that we've done at the Inclusive Economy Lab, that shows that this is really possible, that if you provide holistic supports for students that support them personally, support them financially, support them academically, and help them transition to the workforce in a way that um, you know is supportive of their goals and expectations, they can re really, really increase persistence and graduation. Um, one example here in the Chicago area that we have worked with and studied is a program called One Million Degrees that provides those kind of wraparound services. And we've found incredibly promising results for um, how those programs can increase persistence and graduation. And so thinking about how do you scale those kinds of programs and make sure that all students at open access or less selective institutions have those kind of wraparound supports to get to degree feels like a critical piece of the puzzle. Yeah, that's very, very true. It's about meeting them again, meeting their needs and, and seeing them not only as students, but also their situations and what they're going through because they, unfortunately, uh, students cannot leave their lives uh, at the door once they go inside the school. So yep. definitely understanding where they are. Thank you. Um, 
so now, Dr. Robinson, the study and uh, the study mentions, but also we just heard uh, from you both that oftentimes the most selective schools are the ones with the best resources for students. What opportunities for innovation do the, do the less selective schools have? What type of resources do they have? Do they need to better support the students, both academically and in every other aspect, personally and professionally even? That's a great question. Uh, based on what students told us, it's the soft resources needed the most in these educational spaces because student belonging is critically important. A great deal of time is spent in classrooms and on campus locations. And when you're an undergrad, feeling welcomed and supported is important. And if I've undermatched academically to be there, then I want to feel connected to the people and to the curriculum in a very concerted way. Now that may mean making additional investments in people whose primary responsibilities is to ensure that this happens with first year, first generation students. Those less resource institutions, they may look at the numbers and say, does it make financial sense for us to invest in more people when we have such few students who fit that for our student body? But that assumes that all the other folks you hired don't do that for the students who don't come in with those same challenges, and they do. Uh, often it's more cultural and it's more hidden. So diversity matters, having students represented in the faces they see matters, student belonging matters. Less selective schools still have alumni offices. Mm -hmm. So they're still investing in students on the, on the back end. Let's get them to invest in students on the front end as well. I love that. I love that last part. Uh, it's about continuing that support, right? Like continue getting involved and really understanding how things are changing after you leave that institution. So I think that's very, very important. Um, now, the very last question that I have for you both, um, what, what are future areas of research in this domain, either that you are pursuing or that you would like to see pursued? Well, we can start with you, Dr. Halberg. Yeah, there's a lot. So I'll I'll just highlight two two things that we're working on. Um, but but I think there's a lot to do in this space to to better understand how to support students. So one um, area of work very directly linked to the report that we've been talking about is some work that we're doing right now, where we've collected financial aid award letters from students, um, CPS students. So we see the full set of award letters that students are deciding between. And we're using those award letters to understand both better understand the trade-offs that students are facing in these college decisions, but also how schools are talking about the uh, award packages because there is zero standard form in how um, schools are talking about aid. And so, you know, some, some schools are talking about work study in one way, other schools talk about it in another way. Grant aid is talked about in one way in some letters and another way in another letters. And it's sometimes very clear what is alone and other times that's less clear. And so trying to understand um, how those letters can either support student decision-making or get in the way and thinking about are there ways to streamline the communication to students about what their options are so that they're making clear and informed decisions between their options. 
Um, the second piece of work, I think, circles back to your question around like what happens in these less selective institutions and how do you support students? So we're doing a lot of work with City Colleges of Chicago um, about how to better support their students, um, and in particular, their Black students, but really all, all students who enroll on campus. Um, so we've been working with the district to think about how to roll out those kind of holistic supports that we were talking about earlier, so that every eligible student who walks on campus has access to those kind of supports. Um, so we're doing work right now to understand how can you implement that kind of support at scale and what's needed to make it successful. Looking forward to seeing that work and continue learning as well. I think this is an amazing opportunity for all higher education and just anyone that's interested in this topic to continue growing and learning in this space to, again, be, be able to support the students in the best way that we can. So thank you so much for all the work that you are that you are uh, that you're doing over there at the uh, inclusive inclusivity lab, uh, economic lab. <laughs> yep, you got it. inclusive economy lab. Inclusive economy. Pick an easy name. <laughs> so many names. Sometimes my brain gets all over the place. Well, thank you. Uh, now, Dr. Robinson, how about you? Um, I think Kelly said all the ones that I would uh, say as well. These research projects are labors of love for us because we believe in the promise of public education. We are public education educated. Uh, we believe in the power of higher education. We believe in investing in our young people and that investment is an investment in ourselves and in our democracy and in our country. Uh, so this work is critically important to make sure those opportunities are cast wide and wider and that the table consistently grows and grows instead of narrowing. Uh, and the only way to do that is to be open and honest about what the data is telling us and to center those student voices and to work towards making it better. Well, thank you so much for that. I, I had a great time listening to y'all. Uh, just reading the research is one thing, but actually listening to the both of you and hearing it from your own experiences is just even more, uh, just a great opportunity for me to continue learning. So thank you so much for taking the time. No worries. Thank you so much for having us. It was great to, to talk about the work and and know that people are paying attention to it and that it's informing folks on the ground. So thank you. Definitely. And that I'll continue to do that. So thank you so, so much. Thank you. This has been another episode of Come to Believe, the podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, give us a review. It really helps us to continue to grow the podcast. And if you want to learn more about Come to Believe, visit www.ctbnetwork.org. Thank you again for all your support. Until next time, keep believing.